guys, welcome to Slash Report. Uh, I'm Prue, and joining me this week as ever is my partner in crime, MK. Hello. Hello. And joining both of us, to our enormous joy, we can't believe we tricked her into coming on with us, is Martha Wells. Hi, Martha. Hi. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good. She She's <laughs> being extremely patient with us, because I, like a magical dummy, actually forgot that we are recording Slash Report today, which, um, uh, that's, that's okay. okay. <laughs> <They were> weird. <laughs> I was talking to Leanne about this episode before we recorded, and she was right. like, wait, who's coming on? And I'm like, Martha Wells. And she's like, she's slumming it with you? Like, why is she coming on? <laughs> well, I slum all the time. That's right. We're not even the bottom of the barrel, Leanne. <laughs> also, Leanne has no right to point fingers. She has, like, discovered new depths to our barrel, right? She scraped the bottom, felt it wasn't deep enough, and then infected us with more terribleness. So, Leanne, girl, I'm shaking my fist at you, but you can't see it. <laughs> She'll hear it. She'll hear it. She'll hear it. But to actually get us back on track, like, we're super excited because, Martha, you write real actual books about real actual stuff. Yeah, well, not real actual stuff, but... Yeah. More fantasy, more sci-fi, like what is your preference? I really like fantasy best, but uh, the most recent books, people are calling them science fantasy, which is sort of a combination of fantasy and science fiction. Is that and, like a new thing? What exactly? Well, tell us about your most recent books first and sort okay. of like what they're about, and then tell us how science fantasy exactly works. <laughs> okay, it's the first, the, the Cloud Roads came out uh, last year, and the sequel, The Serpent Sea, just came out in January. And they're kind of different for me they're about a non-human shapeshifter who the people he thought were his family were killed when he was very young and he doesn't know what he is and he doesn't know anything about his species and so he can fake being a normal person in this world there's a whole a whole lot of different species and races and cultures and everything and then it's about how he find, finally finds his own people and him trying to fit in with them and does he really belong and then they're being attacked by horrible creature people eating creatures and all that kind of thing so that's what they're about <laughs> i was i was waiting for you to inject some violence i was like well yeah. this all sounds too much like a journey of self-discovery without enough murder yeah, for <laughs> there's lots of violence uh, you know I'm, I'm terrible at talking about my book or explaining what my books are i'm not they always have a thing they call the elevator pitch that you're supposed to be able to like right. write a book in like one sentence it's like i can never do that i'm like there's people and some swords <laughs> and they go on a boat and yeah so uh, <laughs> It's, it's a miracle. You just, like, <laughs> it's a miracle I ever got published because I, I don't fit into a lot of the little the things you're supposed to do. They're they're basically I think the reason they're called science that people are calling them science fantasy is that there's magic, but it all can be sort of it's it's not dominant in the story, and there's sort of a science fiction sensibility with the different species and the way things are that when th like there's flying boats, but they're explained how it works and and that kind of thing. And I actually think that science fantasy was actually more, because if you've ever, like, back in the 70s and the Dark Ages and stuff, I was reading Andre Norton, and a lot of the pe things that people think of as uh, tropes and cliches in science fiction and fantasy now were things she actually came up with. And she started writing, like, back in the 20s and wrote, like, 90 books or something. But um, she had a wonderful career, and she's one of my favorite writers. And so a, a lot of her books would now be classified as science fantasy. I think genre wasn't as carefully defined back then. I was going to say, it, I always found it, like, kind of weird that they were trying to separate science fiction and fantasy. Yeah, because it really wasn't for a while. I mean, when you went into the, the bookstore, there wasn't as much. I mean, there was, it was pretty much, that was the only separation is, you know, science fiction was spaceships and, and that kind of thing, and fantasy was magic. Right. And there was not a lot of the... There was not, you know, like urban fantasy and, and epic fantasy. Things were not so finely defined. And people always get into arguments about, like, is this science fiction or is it fantasy? And Yeah. A lot or is it epic theme. fantasy or is it sword and sorcery and all that? Yeah. I always found that they bled into each other enough that I almost found the line kind of ridiculous. Like, it's more of a gradient. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, to me, from the point of view of someone who doesn't actually read in this genre or in those genres very frequently, like, just trying to define where one tips out of science fiction straight into fantasy is kind of like, I mean, unless there's, like, a really obvious dragon on the cover, but even then, yeah. what if it's, like, a steampunk dragon? Like, there's no real way to delineate between the genres to me. But then again, like, I fail at genre in general, so... 
Well, you know what? The key, like the best example for you, Prue, would be Star Wars. Spaceships, but it's clearly uh, fantasy. Yeah. Wait, wait, Star Wars is what kind of fantasy? It's fantasy, but with spaceships. But is it really fantasy? Because, okay, I'm really sorry, everyone who's a Star Wars fan (laughs) and who is still going to have some, like, PTSD about this the minute I mention this word. Because in the prequels, they introduced this concept of the midichlorines. Oh! I know, I'm so sorry. So sorry, everyone. I'm so sorry. Because before that, it's like, I don't think anybody needed the Force explained to them. exactly. Nobody ever needed, like, that was the thing that, like, no one ever needed explaining to them. Like, there were two things in the prequels introduced into our lives that were terrible beyond all words. Number one was midichlorines. Why? And number two was the word younglings. Like, two things that never should have happened, but both did, and I paid 15 bucks a pop to go see those fucking movies. Okay, wait, I don't want to know the answer, but just tell me the yes or no. Are these midichlorines things like the, quote, science explanation of the force? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Martha and I both sound so sad. (laughs) Yeah, you do. He, he destroyed my childhood. He did. He destroyed so many people's childhood. He also destroyed my teenage years of, like, huffing paint in basements and rewatching the original trilogy. What? I wish I was kidding, but... You look so bad. <laughs> no, it's okay. I don't see that stuff anymore. I'm, like, a legit human now. In Canada, we have to watch a video in grade nine about the treatment of the native peoples and how they are probably huffing gas and paint in like the wilderness to tell you how badly we treat people. Don't be the way we treat people. (laughs) Of all the terrible things that we've done to Native Americans slash Indians slash First Nations, the one that Canada decided to highlight was a pain huffing. We literally oh, watched uh, a video about people like siphoning gas out of cars and huffing it out of plastic bags. <laughs> that is like part of my grade nine education. Okay. Wait, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but steering back toward the less terrible <laughs> territory of Star Wars. Uh, but like once you do have like a so-called quote unquote science explanation for something, does that make that science fiction more than fantasy? Not necessarily. Okay, everything everything in the book would have to be explained by science for it to be technically science fiction. Yeah. But I think most people don't really care at that point. They don't. Like nobody yeah, wants exactly. that level of detail. <laughs> Unless you're Tolkien. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you want like a level of detail that's like holy crap, the reason why I never actually managed to read The Hobbit. I was going to say, the reason that I hate Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, I love Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I hate it. How can you act... Okay, I've never read the books, but did you like the movies? No, I fell asleep. Oh, look. I, okay, so I went to the first one. My mom and my sister were like, Fresh we're going to go see Lord over. of the Rings. And I was like, yeah, that looks pretty good. Fell asleep. And then they were like, we're going to go see the oh, second man. one. And I was like, is it better than the first one? And they were like, oh, yeah, a lot more happens. Fell asleep. <laughs> and then they were like, do you want to see the third one? And I was like, I am not paying $15 to take a nap in public. <laughs> like, I could I could do that at home. I just, I don't understand how someone sleeps through Lord of the Rings. Like, like if nothing else, it's really loud. I also slept through most of Star Wars. <sighs> Even more, it's just like punching my childhood in the face right now. I know. It's so, so terrible. <laughs> Let's get back to Martha Wells. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, back to... So, all right. If you're... You just mentioned how it's a miracle you got published since you don't really slip into any easy genres. How did you manage to trick people into making your books real then? I was pretty lucky. I knew a lot of people because I've been in fandom for a long time. I mean, I wrote... Well, I started... I first found Star Wars fan scenes back probably... I think it was early high school. I don't think it was as early as junior high. It was when the Empire Strikes Back came out. Nice. And uh, yeah, when it came out the first time, I found an ad for some Star Wars fanzines in the back of Starlog magazine in their little personal ad section they used to have. Because they used to do a lot of things, not just media and TV, but they used to do a lot of fandom uh, articles and stuff like that. And um, and I actually picked the university I wanted to go to because it had a science fiction fantasy club that was very active and did a science fiction convention. And so I got involved with that and I met a lot of writers and I was in, I graduated college and it was about 1991 or 92. And I was writing my first novel and I was in a writer's group with uh, Stephen Gould, who wrote Jumper and that they made the movie out of. And the book is, yeah. the book is really much better. <laughs> 
and his <laughs> wife, Laura Mixon, who is who's also a science fiction writer, when I was writing my first novel and they were reading it as we and critiquing it as we were going along, it was a critique group thing. And then when they moved to New York, Steve was approached by an agent uh, who'd read his short fiction and wanted to know if he was writing a novel. And he was at that point, he was actually writing Jumper, but he wasn't ready to get an agent, so he passed the agent along to me. And uh, that's how I got my first agent. And when I finished the book, uh, he agreed to represent it. And it actually, that was, yeah, it sold, I think, in 92. So it was probably, it was much earlier than we were writing. I was writing, in, I was in the writing group. It took it about two years to come out. So it actually came out. I think I guys are so old. I can't remember anything. I said 1991, and and it came out in 1993. And uh, this was the Element of Fire. It was okay. a fantasy set in a sort of um, world based on 17th century France, with you know musketeers and and that kind of thing, and great swashbuckling, and lots of fantasy and. <laughs> And um, at that time, it was a bit, there was sort of, they were trying to sort of, people were wanting more fantasy that wasn't just set in, you know, Europe, Middle Ages. And uh, so doing something with a slightly later time period where there was actually guns and, and some level of technology was a bit different. And then I didn't write a sequel to it. I wrote another book called City of Bones. It was set in a completely different, more desert world with a non-human main character. My career has not followed the path that careers are supposed to follow. <laughs> it immediately did, like, you know, a 10-book series or anything. I don't even know how people do those. I can barely like plot out to the end of like one story, much less ten. Well I just wait, yeah, but I don't really plot out very far in advance. <laughs> so are you telling that when you start a book, you get an idea and then you just kind of like it happens along the way. You don't actually know how it's going to end as you're writing it? Pretty much. I'll usually know the first twist. I mean, I, you know, the, there's a quote that I wish I could remember. It's like story starts when something happens and, or something changes and plot starts when something happens. And I usually right. kind of know the thing where the first, to get me through the first couple of chapters or the first twist is what the people, what situation the, the characters are going to be in and what they're going to do. But I don't really know. I kind of have a vague idea of what I want to happen if I want them to go somewhere or there's going to be a, a war or a giant attack or something or, you know, people eating creatures are going to come in or whatever. But <laughs> I actually plot it out in a lot of detail. That's kind just, of terrifying. Just, yeah, that is, right? Like, I, I'm just, like, thinking about the prospect of that. And, like, it's giving me a little bit of vibes. Like, holy shit. <laughs> you live on the edge, Martha. Well, I do, yeah. <laughs> Actually, the only time I've ever had to, like, plot in advance is for um, the Stargate Atlantis books I wrote. And they did not, they are not, like, normal tie-ins. They, right. wanted, they wanted a uh, an outline, like a 10-page outline of the plot, but they weren't going to read it. Nobody in MGM was going to read it, but I had to do it anyway. It was very weird. Yeah, they they, they they have paperwork. I think they have paperwork they have to check off, you know? Oh, Lord. But um, there's not. Just, I mean, just to cut in before you continue with this hilarious story of how everybody at MGM is a moron. And Martha actually wrote two Stargate tie-in novels and a short story, right? Yeah. And there's I own Reliquary. But the other one I just looked up is called Entanglement. And you wrote a short story for the SG-1 or Stargate magazine called Archaeology 101. Yeah. Okay. Those are and, the best uh, of the tie-ins. <laughs> they definitely are, guys. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, because I, I was a big Stargate SG-1 fan for long before Atlantis came out. So I was always always really into it. Yeah, they have this paperwork. And actually, it's very easy to work with because in some tie-ins, there is huge oversight. And they just have to go over every word and all this stuff. And, and in this, they don't really do that. So you have, you have <laughs> basically work with complete freedom to in these in these books, which is one of the reasons. Because at first, I was, I was thinking, I, since I love fanfic so much and I was still writing it I, I really wanted to try to do this and Rachel Kane um, who wrote the um, Stargate SG-1 book had told me that yeah that um, they don't do any oversight I mean they don't make you do anything so I was like okay that sounds good for me but um, I had <laughs> like a full 10 page outline and it was just you know you could have just made that outline gibberish given well I mean a lot of times when you do outlines like that you're really just sort of you know winging it and you're not the publishers most publishers don't really care if you actually follow the outline because they know that there's going to be changes along the way and one thing I've learned is that I cannot tell if an, act, if an action scene is going to work until I'm actually writing it because right. I 
describe it as like an entanglement. There's a, like a gigantic quantum mirror they end up dealing with. It's like big enough for spaceships to go through. At one point in the outline, they actually jumped into it without the uh, jumper. And just in, you know, I, and I was getting that point story. I was like, that is going to kill them. That's not going to work. <laughs> They're going to be dead before they can hear that thing. So I had to change things. But it's just like you don't, when you're doing the outline, you're just thinking about getting to the end of the outline. When you're actually writing the book, it's, it's more is this going to work or not? Is this making sense? You know, is the characterization right? So how did you even get into, like, how did you get wrapped up into the tie-in novels at all? Which I, I, I found it, like, I have to tell you that I found that to be really strange because I was literally just trolling the Strand one weekend, the way that I typically do when I had nothing else to do and I lived in New York. And I was, like, digging through various piles of paperbacks in in the bookstore and I, like, ran across your name on a tie-in novel because I had no idea that you wrote them. And I was like, what the fuck? Is this the same person? <laughs> and I picked it up and I started reading. I was like, yeah, no, that's totally how she writes. And like sat in the strand and read half of it. So like, how did you even get into this? Well, I just, I'd always loved, I mean, I've been writing fanfic for, I don't know what, how long it's been, I guess 30 years now. So it's like I'm, I'm 47. And um, so it was a big part of my life. And the idea, I'd had, I'd done a couple of essays for Ben Bella books for their, one for their Farscape nonfiction uh, essays and one for the Harry Potter. I had so much fun, especially with the Farscape one, is getting to buy, because I'd, I'd seen it when it aired, but we hadn't bought the DVDs yet. For one thing, they were like 100 bucks or something. But being able to justify <laughs> buying the DVD set to watch the show so I could make notes for my essay, it's like, you know, I'm getting paid to watch TV. This is do this thing I love. This is awesome. So part of it was that. I just kind of wanted to do something really different because I just finished the Fall of Illyrian trilogy, which was the Wizard hunters and um the ships of air and the gate of gods and uh the publisher had turned down another book for me so it's kind of like i really i've been writing sort of the same sort of fantasy for quite a while i just wanted to do something that was completely fun and completely different and kind of get out of that mindset this seemed a good way to do it and then again rachel kane that's not the name she wrote the book under the sacrifice moon under the name julie fortune she wrote that's normally she writes under rachel kane she's got like um, a couple of big series i was talking to her about it and she told me, yeah, that she, I had read her book and it's, it's really good. And it's very much her book. You can really tell she does a lot of, um, there's a lot of things that are very characteristic of her writing. And so, yeah, she told me, yeah, they did not try to micromanage her at all. And you know, that the, there was no telling her what to write or what to do or anything like that. The only thing that they, they say is like, you can't kill off a canon character, which you think would be obvious. <laughs> and, um, and they John actually got, would have been the first one to go if I was right. John Shepard. Yep. Dead. God. First five pages. Oh, no. Um, I love him. No, um, you killed Jack O'Neill. No, I love him too, but that's why I kill it. him. That's how I express it. Oh, okay. I love Jack. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I just I just had a great time doing it and being able to use a jumper and just go to like, instead of, because one thing when you're writing very more traditional fantasy without steampunk or without anything like that, or I, I used fairy rings occasionally in my book for them to go places, but you, you're kind of the, um, you're kind of stuck with the, 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 uh, the, with the transportation that they would have. Yeah. So it's fairly slow. And like in the, the Fallville Rian trilogy is a little bit steampunk and they're going into different worlds, but, and one of the, the people they're fighting actually have airships. I, it was steampunk before steampunk got popular, basically. And I also have like a giant 1920s ocean liner that they have to travel on across this other world at one point without kind of really knowing very much about where they're going. So... <laughs> That sounds uh, kind of amazing. It was a lot of fun. I actually, I did a lot of research on it. The Queen Mary is still at uh, Long Beach. It also still runs. It still does transatlantic trips. No, no, not that Queen Mary. This is the original Queen Mary from the, uh, the 1930s. The ghost one? No. Okay. <laughs> the one that have ghost tours on. Yeah, that is that one. And it's, the, the, the boiler room, the engines have actually been removed. And it's uh, it's used as a hotel and, and they do stuff on it and, and different places have owned it and done a lot of restoration. But I don't know what shape it's in right now. I mean, I know they're still using it. The only reason I know anything about it is because they, of course, filmed an episode of Ghost Hunters on it. And if yeah. there's trash television about ghosts, I'm totally going to watch it. The yeah, only I love I ghosts. It's because of an episode of Kindaichi Files. What? Yeah, Oguri Shun plays Kindaichi, and there's like, you know, eight people dying on the Queen Mary, but off the coast of Japan. Are any of those words you just said supposed to make sense to me? Kindaichi is like like Detective Conan, except he never turns into a kid. He's just like like a 17-year-old who is attractive and solves crime. Okay, Uh, moving right along. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, okay. Mo- moving away from that terrible whatever. One thing that I'm really curious about, because you got your start writing in fandom and now you write professionally. Do you feel like, this is actually a question that I'm ganking from Lepagus, because uh, I asked her if she, won- she wanted to ask any fangirl questions and she came up with a legitimate one instead. She's like, because when you're writing for fandom and everyone who has written for fandom knows this, you have like an amazing latitude, right? You can write whatever you want. You can be extremely mm-hmm. experimental. You can be very extreme. You can be silly. The stuff is very much free form. When you do move away from that genre into like writing, you know, an actual novel that has to have like a beginning and then like you have to be able to do an elevator pitch on it. Do you find that you had to change your writing style in order to make yourself more appealing to publishers rather than audiences, which is kind of what you're direct selling when you're in fandom? Uh, No, not at all. It depends on the type of book you're writing. I mean, there's a lot of fantasy and science fiction that's very surrealist and very experimental, especially now. It just, but if you're, if you're writing like an epic fantasy, there are expectations about it, but there's a lot of people now who are, who, and who have all through the years basically been challenging those expectations. So what it basically means is people will argue a lot about whether your book is epic fantasy or not, or if it's steampunk or not, or, or whatever. But, I don't, there's no restriction on that. It's like the editors buy what they like. One editor may be more into traditional, and more and and other editors may be like more things that are just out there. Anything goes. Gotcha, gotcha. So okay, that's sort of interesting. And to lead into a question that I've been curious about, whenever we talk about genre, I think that we inevitably get this like really terrible mental image of like the person who sleeps in the basement of their mom's house and like is the game master of their local table top gaming whatever convention and has land parties um and we were talking briefly about this before we started recording but I feel at least, and I'm curious to know your opinion, whether or not science fiction fantasy has sort of like lost its book ghetto status of late. I don't think it has. I think the... Even with like the popularity of like fucking Game of Thrones and Twi- yeah. to some extent Twilight. In some ways, I don't, I really don't think it has. I think, uh, I mean, I've been to conventions like where, um, God, the one I, I went to one in France in, in Nantes, and um, this was a big convention. It was publisher you know, for, for Europe, and there was publishers from all over the place, and, and um, uh, they had it in the town hall, actually, of not. And I get in the elevator in the little hotel that the guests were booked into, and there's two British guys in there, and one asked me if I'm, you know, like going to, or had heard of the convention or something. I said, yeah, I'm one of the guests. And he immediately makes a trackie joke at me, of these idiot nice. trackies that do whatever. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> it's just like, okay, when are we getting to my floor? And, um, you know, so it still happens. There's still people with those attitudes. I, I, I think... Doesn't that depend on where you are? The, hmm? That depends on where you are, though, right? Because, okay, if you were in, like, Calgary, that would probably be the response here. It'd be like, Haha, are you a Trekkie? And you'd be like, it's Trekker and yes. But if you're in Toronto, like I, I say it a lot, but everyone in Toronto is a nerd. Everyone. First day of university, walked in on the biggest land party I've ever seen in my life. Like, in the cool kids' room. Uh, yeah, I do think that's true. I think, like, in Austin, you know, there's, um, uh, Austin's sort of an anything-goes town, too. So there's, so there's, you probably get, you would get less crap there, probably, too. So, yeah, I do think it, it probably does depend on place, like you say. But, I mean, women, the idea that, there's, there's still the idea that women do not like science fiction and fantasy, and you still see this show up a lot. And women have been into science fiction and fantasy ever since there's been science fiction and fantasy. Like, there's the... Texas A&M University did an exhibit from their uh, science fiction fantasy collection mm-hmm. and one of their really early books was from the 1800s and it was a science fiction novel um, I can't remember the date but it was very early and it was called The Mummy and it was written by a woman. Okay. And mm-hmm. so some of the and you know some of the first people who write science fiction fantasy were women. Well I was going to say a lot of authors, this sounds so weird but you know so many of the really good science fiction fantasy authors who all have men's names are actually women. Uh, well, oh I'm going to forget them all but yeah. <laughs> Sorry, to be proof of this claim. <laughs> yeah. No, there's like like Well Andre Norton, people thought Andre Norton was a man for a long time, you know. Because you know and a lot of times when everybody when now when someone has initial rights under initials, they sort of assume it's a woman. Oh really? Yeah. Interesting. I mean in a lot of cases they are. Uh, FM Busby was one of my favorite authors and I sort of assumed he was a woman when <laughs> um because of that when I was a kid, but then found out no, it was a guy. I think there used to be, like, when I was a kid at least, like, kind of a stereotype that women wrote fantasy and men wrote science fiction. Oh, I think that's still a stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. Which seems ridiculous to me because I read, okay, most of the science fiction I read is terrible, but... (laughs) 
as as opposed to most of the other stuff you read. Okay, pretty much everything I read is terrible, but let's just say that I would say like two thirds of the science fiction I read is written by women, like and under women's names, like not hiding it at all. And I like I don't know why I don't understand why there should be the divide because I almost feel oh I don't know how I to say. I it. I, let me let me propose a theory, right? And this is coming from like. A, it's going to be really obvious that I'm very poorly read in this genre. But, like, whenever you think of who defines a genre, right? Like, if you want to think about, like, literary fiction, you think about a, a certain group of people. And they become, like, Salman Rushdie is, like, someone you think about when you think of literary fiction or something like that. Yeah. Whenever I think of fantasy, I think about Anne McCaffrey and the fucking per. And whenever I think about science fiction, I think about Orson Scott Card. And I think maybe that those gender delineations come from the fact that the most prominent members of those genres fall one way or the other. They probably do, yeah. Though I will say, when I think of science fiction, I think of Isaac Asimov. And when I think of fantasy, I think of Tolkien. See, I never even thought of Tolkien as fantasy because I don't don't know why. I just thought of it as Tolkien. (laughs) But you're right. It is definitely fantasy. (laughs) I think of him as bad fantasy. I think yeah, it's boy I fantasy. Yeah, okay. Now, I, Tolkien's writing is like, I'm trying to, because I tried to read The Hobbit three separate times. Well, my life is not a good one to start with because he did write that for children. And it's the first yeah, book he wrote. I was a child when I first started. I was also a child when I tried to read that. I made it one page and I was like, fuck no. I made like a chapter. But I tried multiple times and I could never pinpoint what it was about well, the writing that was such a turnoff. Well, he said that he he felt like the Hobbit he did write down to he he was writing down to children. He thought that, but he later realized that that was a mistake. And the Fellowship of the Ring is not like that. No, it's it's just like his writing had a sort of like obsessive like TikTok quality, um, which I guess is really good for very detailed world building. But it was like it was TikTok quality on stuff that I didn't care about. I was well, I'm saying you can do detailed world building without that. Yeah, exactly. But it was it was just sort of like I don't give a crap about any of this stuff. It's not just, like, detailed world building, right? Like, you can world build without, like, shoving world building in the face. But uh, he is, like, literally, like, press your face up to this world building. <laughs> I'm about to explain all the things. Well, you have to remember back then they didn't. He was really doing something new. They didn't. There weren't a lot of books like that. Or there were very few books like that. Yeah. Doesn't mean I yeah. have to like it, though. <laughs> it's true. Well, I just, so like... Angry tweets. <laughs> you're gonna so get so much hate mail like we're a lot of hate mail. so much hate mail for this sorry um, guys sorry i'm not sorry yeah well it always makes me think about like so when i was in school i was always like pretty adamant about disliking science fiction and fantasy as a genre just because i felt that they were like really inaccessible to me as a reader um and i when i got into high school i actually had an english teacher who like through some sorcery found out about this that I did not like science fiction fantasy or that I claimed I didn't like it. And and over the years, obviously this has been proven distru- like untrue because of the way that like I cling on to all sorts of media that has science fiction and fantasy elements and I obviously love it to pieces. Um, and I think that he sort of identified early on that it's just, it wasn't necessarily that I didn't like the genre. It's just that I didn't like specific stories. Right. And the two books that he pressed on me were, Orson Scott Card, the first book of his, oh, Jesus, just look this up because I knew I was going to forget the name of it. Pardon? Not Ender's Game? Not Ender's Game. Um, Past Watch book, the first Past Watch book, which is Past Watch, The Redemption of Christopher Columbus, which is an incredibly interesting book about how at the end of human civilization, like everyone knows that the end is coming. There are these people who keep with like machines or whatever, gazing into the past to try and pinpoint the exact moment that humanity went awry. And they decide it's the moment that Christopher Columbus lands in the Americas. So they like time travel back there, thus obliterating the future, right? Completely. And try to restart, you know, the the trajectory of humanity. And I like fucking love that. I stayed up all night reading it. And the other one he gave me was Ursula K. Le Guin's um, The Left Hand of Darkness. Mm-hmm. And I sort of, and I realized that th- both of those books share a similar characteristic in that the characters themselves were interesting and the other stuff around it just was tertiary, right? Like the weird science stuff and, like, the weird fantasy elements of it, to me, were all, like, oh, they're in the background. Like, the characters themselves are the most interesting. And so for me, it's always been really obvious, like, 
if I read a book and the key element of the book, like the big thing that the author is into is the science part or like the fantasy part and the characters are sort of just like dotted on to be more masturbatory about that stuff. Like I'm not going to like that book at all, which is the way a lot of, a lot of science fiction fantasy feels to me for the most part. Despite Orson Scott Card being like an evil, crazy old man. Horrible human being. Horrible human being. Probably one of the worst human beings ever. Yeah. (laughs) His strength in writing really is like really amazing characters. And then like he actually has plotted out a great science fiction background and it's important but you're like but I don't really care like I just want to see Ender murder some kids <laughs> so I never really liked Orson Scott Card I, I do prefer books where the characters are more prominent but I also like I uh, I like the world to feel uh, real to me and I think unless the author is somewhat into the world also then that's not going to feel real now, I, like, I like characters that couldn't exist unless they were part of that world Have you read uh, his book Enchantment? No. Okay, so Enchantment is a book that he wrote that is a fantasy book that starts off uh, with a Russian fairy tale. Nice. Uh, And the fairy tale is that there's like this princess in the woods who has been like Sleeping Beauty style. She's like unconscious forever, basically. But she's surrounded. So in the woods, there's her on like, let's say a circle of ground. And around the circle of ground is like a deep pit, like a ring. And they've filled it with leaves and a bear. And <laughs> wait, wait, wait. The two things that they put in this hole were leaves and a bear. But like like a like a monster bear. Like a bear that will <laughs> live forever. Leaves? Like why the leaves? Because when you when you approach this part of the forest, all you see is like like a big empty space full of leaves and in the middle is this beautiful woman sleeping. Uh, and when you try to get close to her, the bear will like fucking rise up out of the ring and destroy you. Like just murder you to death. <laughs> Uh, and okay so the point of the story is at the beginning there's this boy who lives in Russia with his family uh, and he's out in the woods and he comes across this woman and the bear and he's like holy shit like runs back home Uh, and everyone is like that's ridiculous stop making up stories Uh, and then it gets weird because his family is like by the way we lied about your name that is not your name and we're moving to America and he's like what What?" and they're like yeah uh, we're kind of hiding from the Russian government and we just we faked your name here is your real name Except that, okay, anyways, suffice to say, eventually he goes back to Russia as a grown-up, sees that the woman is still there, unaged, the bear is still, like, running around, like, ready to murder him, and then time travel happens, and he goes back to, like, medieval Russia with her, and they fall out. sounds like the worst fucking story. <laughs> I'm really bad at explaining it, but it's really, like, it's like a Russian fairy tale fantasy time travel book in Russia. Was there, like, was there even a point to this? Like, yes, when you brought this is, up, like, what were you going to use this to illustrate? <laughs> is most of Orson Scott Card's books are just about the characters and this is a book that is like yeah the character is really important but more important is like his world building based on this Russian fairy tale and so (laughs) the characters can only exist inside this environment that he creates for him so Martha might like it even though I'm terrible at explaining it yeah do you do you see that hesitation in her voice that's natural and human Shut up. Just, it's a good book. I liked it a lot. My books sound ridiculous when you explain them, when you try to explain the story. I think that's part of the problem with liking science fiction and fantasy when people ask you about it. You know, people assume that because they've seen Twilight, they know everything about urban fantasy, or because they've seen Lord of the Rings, they know everything about fantasy or whatever. But it is so vast. I mean, there's there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. Yeah. And and you can't, and someone's, so when someone says, oh, I don't like fantasy because I read this book once, it's very frustrating. It's kind of like when people say, oh, I don't like fanfic because I saw this Harry Potter story and it was really bad. So all fans exactly. bad. There's and more Harry so Potter fanfiction than there is water in the ocean. <laughs> yeah. And so it's kind of like, I, I, I really hate it when people define science fiction and fantasy by one or two elements that are, you know, were sort of looked on as outmoded back in the 70s. Yeah. Right. It's very frustrating when there's there's so much variety and the people who are, there's a huge variety among the people who are writing it and a huge variety among the people who are reading it. It's kind of, and it's almost like the, the reason there's such a passion for classifying everything and, and trying to define genre is because... There's so there there's so many things that are hard to define and it's hard to, you know it's hard to find what you want to read when things aren't defined. But then trying times tends to push tends to try to push people into making these categories more narrow. I actually yeah I was actually going to say that I feel like trying to define the categories at all is really bad, especially for speculative fiction, right? Because yeah. 
stories that like to me on the outset like if you had just given me the general plot um I would have been like that sounds really interesting I totally want to read that but because of the way that they're marketed or because of the way that they're branded or just like when people are like no this is like a total fantasy tour de force I was like oh I hate fantasy tour de forces they always involve dragons and like skimpy ladies on the cover and I don't like that so I'm not going to read it and thereby I'm missing something that's totally awesome because it's actually about these like really complex interpersonal relationships in the context of this very cool universe right and I I almost wish that like bookstores didn't have genre shelves just because I feel like I'm missing out on a lot of potential interesting fiction just because I hesitate to go certain places but then how would I find my time travel historical ghost romance Emily I'm gonna reiterate the point that that is probably one of the worst things you've ever recommended on this podcast and given what you've recommended on this podcast that is saying a lot still one of my favorites horrible beyond words although uh uh, Martha, I was just going to say, like, given Emily's performance trying to explain that book, I think we can safely say that you're a lot better elevator pitches than she is. Yeah. Okay. Someone once asked me for my elevator pitch, and I was like, I can't. I won't give you one because, no. I think that was my answer. Like, just, you know. <laughs> what, was, what were they asking you for an elevator pitch on? I don't want to say on the podcast. It's, like, real life related. Just okay. It was, like, career related, and I was like, nope. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> Terrible at this part. It's hard. It's like the marketing is, all, is a, such a completely different thing from actually writing or creating things it's just it's yeah I think you either know how to do it or you don't well how do you train yourself into it because uh, clearly you've got an actual professional writing career like and you clearly find it really difficult like it's just one of those things where you like lie back and think of your royalties or like how does this work (laughs) my agent does it basically I've uh, I don't do a lot of it myself because yeah I just I, I do things I think would be would be interesting to me and it's like they just fall flat that's why I'm not I'm that's, uh, that's why I'm not rich that's why I'm not nobody's ever heard of me you know I'm not very popular so oh my god Martha okay when I go book shopping with my friend Paul the first thing he does is try to find you on the shelf oh that's nice yeah he was like holy shit Martha Wells is the greatest author of all time everybody has to read her like everybody ever has to read everything that she has ever written great I'm buying 12 copies of these I already own them <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Did you tell Paul we were talking to her today? Yeah. Or would he have burst into tears and been inconsolable? <laughs> I told him. He was super excited. I was like, do you have anything you want to ask her? And he was like, too full of feelings to come up with a question. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> like, he loves you. Yeah. Well, I just wish there was like, you know, a lot more like him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't cloned post-haste. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you are when you're a professional writer. A lot of it, I think it's a little bit better now when you're on the internet and the uh, because most of my career was pre-internet, really. We're not pre-internet, but... Uh, like early days? Social, yeah, the, so, the social networking was not at the level it is now. And um, you just, you feel like you're in a void. And it's like you put the book out there and, and you know, you have to ask what's going on with it. If anybody's actually reading it or buying it. And, and now you do hear from people occasionally. So that's a lot nicer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I assume it would be. Yeah. I can't so wait, it. do you have to, you mentioned that you were, you did a con in France. Like, do you do a lot of those? Are those primarily for your writing or are you just going for shits and giggles? No, my, uh, well, the, the one in France, my public, my, my French publisher who did, uh, they haven't done my recent books, but they did, uh, all the Ilran books had, uh, invited me to come over there and pay for it. Otherwise there was absolutely no way I would have been able to make it over there. <laughs> but, um, that was great. Uh, the, the conventions, I love going to conventions. I used to be, uh, in college, I was chairman of the local science fiction convention and, uh, it used to be, it used to be the biggest one in the Southwest. It's still going on, but, um, it's had budget problems over the years. So it's much, much smaller. Um, so I love going to conventions and just, you know, being able to actually interact with people who also like science fiction and fantasy. Because that was a big thing for me when I was growing up is I had the library and I had the bookstore and that was about it. And right. uh, and I got told basically that I was the only person who read science fiction and fantasy. So you and- were Belle in that town from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. It was, you felt, I felt very alone. It's like, even though when you're a kid, even though you, you intellectually know that there must be people writing these books and other people reading them or they wouldn't be here, the, the reality you're living in is that you're the only one. And when you, especially, I mean, my, somebody told me that all books were ghostwritten, which made it sound like all the people who I was reading were dead. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was reading older books, so some of them probably were, but there were a lot of people who were, you know, probably, were, there were a lot of people who were still alive, and the, but the library doesn't get new books very fast. And as, right. you know, so to you, it feels like this was a world that you somehow missed out on. And so it wasn't really until Star Wars came out, and that I, and then then when I finally was able to get in t- touch with people who were writing fanzines, that I felt like there were other fans out there. So I've always loved conventions, I've always loved going and, and meeting all the people and talking, and where people actually, you know, you feel... Uh, a community with people. Yeah, I think the first Everybody convention... knows what you're talking about when you make Doctor Who jokes or whatever. <laughs> the first convention that anyone ever goes to, I think, is like a huge revelation. You're like, oh my god, this is a giant structure full of nerds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, like, I'm with my people. I'm not alone anymore. Yeah, basically. And it, it really meant a lot to me. And so I've always enjoyed going to conventions. And I went to Media West, which was a big fancy convention uh, in Michigan. I love Media West. Years. Oh, I loved it. We had so much fun. Um, For people who haven't been to Media West, the dealer's room is just a room where they sell zines. Yeah, there's other stuff too. But, but it's, it's like mostly, mostly zines. Mostly. It's not like... Like, companies don't come. It's, like, just fans, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an all-fan convention. Yeah, it's and great. let's decorate the doors because there was no room in the dealer's room for everybody who wanted to be in. People sell things out of their rooms, and they let you decorate the doors. Yeah, you and can just walk w- the halls and, like, find things to buy. Yeah, when I went with my friends, we were very into Hercules' legendary journeys. Who wasn't? I love Hercules. <laughs> we actually built a Hydra. What? We a Hydra out of, like, dryer tubing and... And dinosaur masks, and we made the ears out of uh, uh, glittery paper and the whole bit. And we had a little forest along the side of the wall and everything. And, and people built stargates, and they built the fireplaces that you could go through for, from Harry Potter. And there was a whole Diagon Alley in one hallway one year. And oh, the hotel was a little holiday in, and it made so much money off it. It just let you do whatever the hell you wanted. Yeah, that hotel is like, please come, please be Yeah, hard. I mean, they make a ton of money, and there was Star Wars uh, live-action role-playing every year. And one year, one of my friends got sick, and they, 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 we asked the con, the guy who was sort of the con paramedic, and he called the doctor for her, and it's a great phone call. i got to use this for the title of my memoirs. It says, the doctor may be dressed as Luke Skywalker. Yes! <laughs> Yeah. And, and he was, and he was a great doctor. And I had to help him put his lightsaber belt on um, um, <laughs> when he after Wait, that a euphemism, Mark? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like, you know, when they turn around and the nurses help tie up their gown and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> and I help tie up his lightsaber belt and, and you know. Suffice to say, guys, you should probably try to visit Media West. It's it's super fun. I don't think it's as big as it used to be because, you know, so, so few people are doing fanzines now because it's so expensive. Yeah, I was, was going to ask you about that because I've never, okay, I own one fanzine it's and that's because right? I submitted a story to it yeah. and it was surfacing, which is a great scene, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I just, do people still do zines? It just, it doesn't seem, I think like surfacing was the only zine that I really heard about that was like, hey, active participation in this, please. Uh, some people, some fans really uh, still do, like they're, they're fairly small ones, but um, I don't think there's nearly as many. So used, I mean, it, it, there used to be hundreds, if not thousands there, and now there's probably, there's probably under a hundred, I would think. Right. I haven't mm-hmm. gone in a couple of years because my, one of my friends lives in England and she hasn't been able to over for it so we kind of haven't had the the, the money and the um, impulse to go to it anymore <laughs> i can't believe emily you're just such a failure like all of your years of trying to get me to go to media west if you had told me about like the amazing decorative elements of this i told yeah. you you know it, that i'm bad at elevator pitches like this is not like i you never have to elevator pitch me like you can send me trickling details of everything over years and months and you've never told me anyone makes a fucking hydra listen i have my moments where i'm like wait i know exactly how to sell this to someone it's prue listen there are babies like there are babies involved you're gonna love it if it's 20 something i'm like girl styles girl styles all up in the teen wolf but if I'm trying to get someone to go to an event, I'm like, well, there's there's a party. <laughs> uh, people will be there with papers. <laughs> like, I don't... You can buy the papers. It, it's good. You'll like it, I promise. It's in Michigan. Michigan wow. is terrifying. It's in, it's in a Holiday Inn in Michigan. Yeah, like, essentially. And I'm like, but it's the greatest Holiday Inn in Michigan. <laughs> Never. You're revoked. You're so fucking terrible at this. You want me to send you fan fiction? Done. I will pimp it to you hard. Anything else? Useless. 
Meanwhile, I have to tell, okay, dear Slash Report listeners, an email that I actually got this week, right, <laughs> was a chain email from these assholes because, my, Martha, like, don't ever be friends with these people. We're the best. <laughs> They've all fallen down, like, the dark hole of Teen Wolf together, which, like, I don't actually object to on any fundamental level because, like, I watch a lot of shitty television, too. But the Michael, the Michael J. Fox movie or from yeah, a long time ago? No, it's the new television movies. Here's the thing, though, just to clarify, you don't actually watch the show. You just get into yeah. the fandom. Like, you watch one episode and you're done. Okay, the sure, that's fine. Terrible. You filthy furry. Um, the point is that, like, I don't really care either way, but they have been obsessed with it ever since this hit, and I don't get, I don't really like werewolves or vampires, so it's kind of like, whatever, you guys do whatever you want to. But then these jerks, like, after this horrible, long teen wolf back and forth, they were like, this story has babies. Send it to Prue immediately. Maybe she will knuckle under and read it. And I was like, you know what, Emily? This is like the first stroke in our mutually assured destruction game, and you know it. No. Yes! No! Why would you do this? I didn't click on it. If I clicked on it, your pin board would be filled with bombs, it right? It is a super cute story about where babies. I like on a respond to this. We should move on. We should do like science fiction and fantasy book wrecks or something. We should, but actually, before we do that, I did want to ask Martha. There are a lot of people who are going to be listening to this podcast who are writers of speculative fiction, um, and a lot of them, I think, I know at least for one of my friends, who I'm going to leave unnamed. One of her major issues is, like, she feels that her writing is, like, too out there. That as much as she really enjoys it, she thinks that, like, she'll never get published. It'll never find a home because it's, like, so strange and weird. Um, you've talked a lot about people pushing boundaries and, like, not trying to be blocked in by genre. Like, give us some give some advice to our aspiring writers, either fanfic or people who are hoping to be published as speculative fiction writers. Like, what would you say from your heart to theirs? I mean, you have to write something you're passionate about. Because you see, um, in a lot of the sort of bad writer's digest advice things, it tells you, oh, write what you know and write, follow this trend and blah, blah, blah. And you can't follow a trend because by the time you get the book done and, and you found it <laughs> and all that, it could be a couple of years and the trend may be over. Yeah. If, if her writing is really out there, I wonder if she's read Jeff Vandermeer because he's... Uh, I mean, he is out there. He's a great guy, and his his writing is very surrealist. And um, also, uh, there's um, I think in a lot of ways I, I can't pronounce their names to save my life. It's Labby Tidhar. Um, he just wrote Osama, or uh, that's just been out. And um, wait, Osama is like the name of a book, right? Uh, yeah, it's the name of his book or most recent book. And Kelsey. Um, uh, China, I'm gonna, I'm mangling this name. Uh, that's the problem with podcasts. Is China Meatville? <laughs> oh, yeah. um, but there's a lot of people who are doing things that are very uh, on, you know, sort of. Uh, I forget what uh, the new weird is basically all about. Um, being out there and doing things that are really different. And Anne Vandermeer was the editor of Weird Tales for a long time, and that's one of the things they did. But the, um, if you look it up online, New Weird, they've actually got a, a online magazine now where they talk about all the stuff that's uh, they're really sort of cutting edge. Um, in that area, and so I'd recommend her to to look up that. If she doesn't read it already, and she may she may do that. But do they, for, um, do they take submissions? Do you know? Um, I don't know. It's a the new weird. It's a nonfiction. They do a lot of nonfiction articles. They also have articles about art that's in that genre, and um, they do highlight stories. But uh, Weird Tales does uh, does is, does take submissions, but it's a um, it's under a different editor now, so I don't know if they're, how much they're going to follow what they've been doing previously. There is so much room for different stuff. I mean, the whole idea of science fiction fantasy in the first place was you could kind of do anything you wanted. So I wouldn't, if she's writing... In that, in that sort of vein, she may never be a popular, terribly popular writer. You know, you're never going to be a bestseller, maybe. It's like, which, I'm in that club, too, so I'm never going to be a bestseller. I think it's important to, like, there's always, like, a terrible, like, when you're starting out writing, you always have this, like, momentary hope that you'll be able to be, like, a New York Times bestselling author, and, like, all yeah. you'll do is, like, write and tour. But the reality of it is most people don't. You know? No, most people, very few writers are able to make a living from only writing. Uh, most, they did a recent article said that most writers make under $10,000 a year. And right. that's where I was, I mean, that's where I've been for quite a while. Last year I was under $5,000. I'm a full-time writer because my husband is basically, we're on his insurance, and, and so we, that's why I don't starve to death, basically. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, an earlier point in my career I could have, but that was only for about a year. Right. 
So your career is going to vary a lot, probably, and there's going to be years where it's great, and there's going to be years where you, you know, you can't sell anything. Yeah. So you have to do it for the love of it, guys. You have to do it for the love of it. I mean, it's like every person who is making a big living and is making a lot of money, there are a hundred, you know, working writers who are having just as many things, if not more, come out during the year, be published during the year, who are not making enough to, to live on or to support anybody else. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but um, Emily, you said that we had a reader question that I foolishly had overlooked. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, so we have a question for you, Martha, from Foolish Mortal. Okay. Uh, who want to know if you find a difference between sci-fi written by men and sci-fi written by women. I think it really depends on the person. I mean, I know there are people who, well, I, I talked about this on my live journal once, and it basically came down to the fact that there are people who look at the the gender of the author before they buy the book and, and base a lot of their decision on whether they're going to read something on the gender of the author. And then there are people who it has never occurred to them in their entire life to look at the gender uh, of the author before making a, a decision to read something, and there's not a lot of ground in between that. And I think really the people who look at the gender of the author are almost in the in the minority as far as serious readers go, because I think yeah. people. Who, I was going to say I can't imagine that being a concern. Yeah, yeah like I'm like you hear about it. Author name. Yeah. When you hear about it and you haven't thought about that before, you're just like, what? It's like you know trying to make a decision on what color the the person is wearing or something by whether you're going to read their story or not. It's like, are you crazy? So <laughs> I don't think there is, any, I think it depends on their, the individual because it's kind of like the Kinsey scale, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm a big believer in that. I don't, I don't like, I don't believe in absolutes of gender behavior because I know too many people who don't fit into those absolutes. Uh, so I think there's probably a sliding scale, you know? Yeah. Oh, can I also say while we've been doing this by by the way, uh, Agent with Style, the zine publisher, just sent me an update about new zines that are coming out. <laughs> okay. Like in Which the last ones? Tell, let, let our listeners be some of the first to know. <laughs> oh, yeah? Oh, it's mostly Jen. It appears to be uh, Blake 7, Boston Legal, NCIS, Supernatural, and one that is Criminal Minds slash The Mentalist slash White Collar. Oh, my God. White Collar does not belong anywhere near Criminal Minds. <laughs> Followed by a Planet of the Apes real Ghostbusters novel. There's a lot here. Yeah, the real Ghostbusters fandom was huge for a while. I, I, I think it's still. I think it's still pretty big. It probably is. Uh -huh. it's, it's iconic. Our vision is not comprehensive yeah. in this sort of thing. All right, I'm still reeling at the idea of poor white collar being in the same neighborhood. Well, I mean, is it a? Is it one story? Is it a? Is it a crossover story, or is it just a sign that has all three of those in it? Because it's you know a lot of the same people read the different ones. Hard to say, because I'm not going to click on it. It <laughs> terrifies me. There's ones where they'll have multiple fandoms, you know. Yeah. So it might not be a, a giant crossover. Of course, it might be a giant crossover, which would be kind of interesting. But we'll I, mean, to never, I mean, seriously, that's one thing I've learned is never say never, because you'll say, ah, oh, I never read that. And then you'll find somebody will do an absolutely fabulous story with, with this crazy shit, you know. Yeah, that's valid. I've read some terrible things trying to find the thing that changes my mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, All right, let's do Rex. Yeah. Uh, Martha, since you're our guest of honor, do you want to get us started? Oh, okay. Um, one of the new books that's just come out is, um, uh, the first one came out last year is God's War by Cameron Hurley. And she's really up and coming. It's also published by Nightshade. And um, it's set on a, a, a far, sort of far future planet, a woman who's an assassin. And it's very violent. Um, and, and really good. It's up for the Nebula Award this year. Oh, wow. uh, someone who's fairly, uh, still fairly new, um, her fourth book is just about to come out, uh, is N.K. Jemison. She wrote The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, and it's it's epic fantasy, but it's from a very uh, personal viewpoint. And uh, There's three of them, The, the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, The Broken Kingdoms, and the um, uh, the Kingdom of the Gods, which is also up for a Nebula this year, and uh, the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms is up for a Nebula also, and it's an, they're just incredible books. And um, again, if you if you think you dislike epic fantasy for various reasons, you may want to try them because they're very they're very different. And so, um, she also the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms is the first one. It's a it's a it's a trilogy. It's complete now. But I thought every book was fairly standalone. I mean, there was a an overarching story. Each book was was really was could. could be self-contained i thought in, in my opinion she also read the cloud roads and the serpent sea and she she read the 
the new book that's coming out in January, The Siren Depths, and she gave me some great comments on it. So I was very happy about that. Judith Tarr has been one of my longtime favorites. She writes a lot of different stuff. She writes, she would say it was science fiction, but but it's been marketed as fantasy. And I think she would. I don't want to put words in her mouth. She wrote uh, some, some books set in somewhat alternate version of uh, medieval Europe with elves, which sounds like they'd be very twee, but they're actually very not. Again, it's very... Very a historian, and her, her, you know, you feel like you're reading something from that time period, and it's, but it, it's, they're just fabulous books. Naomi Novik's just had a book come out, and she's, uh, I really like her, her work too. Um, and that was going to be the Temerar series, right? The Temerar series. Um, oh, those books are so good. <laughs> yeah, I love them. Emily? Okay, so since Martha has written some Star Trek uh, novelizations, I thought I would do a little Sorry, Stargate. I'm sorry. I'm holding a Star Trek one. So I have a Star Trek one that is, I would say, the best Star Trek novelization ever written. It's Wait, is this the one you told me about? Yes. And okay. I, can, I can read a passage from it. Like, that's how good it is. It is called Star Trek, The Price of the Phoenix. Yeah. Oh, I hated that book. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it's by Sandra Marshak and Myrna Culbreth. And yeah. I bought it at a convention from a lady who had like two boxes of just Star Trek books. And I pulled this one out and I was like, this one sounds pretty gay. And she was like, that is the gayest Star Trek book ever written. And I was like, how much? And she was like, 25 cents. And I was like, sold. So the basic premise is Captain Kirk dies uh, saving children from a house that is on fire and collapsing. <laughs> of course he does. Like he is in the house when it collapses on fire uh and spock is like heartbroken and kind of goes insane and then this alien on the planet is like hey come down here for a second come down from the enterprise and spock goes down and they have captain kirk like unmarked like not a scar on him and they're like do you want him do you want to win him in a poker game uh and then he does but the great part is Kirk remembers dying and then remembers like waking up here and he's like but I'm dead and they're like but you're alive <laughs> And the alien, Omni, is like, oh, Spock, why don't you mind meld with him to, like, test if this is really the, like, the true Kirk. Like, you know his soul. You should probably be able to tell. And the whole time, he's describing him as, like, you're as innocent as any virgin, more than most, a grown man without sin. And then they describe him, like, naked except for a sheet and, like, golden-skinned. And it's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> if you can find this for 25 cents, buy it. I felt like that book was very mean-spirited in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. But it's yeah. definitely my favorite 25-cent purchase. <laughs> <laughs> Next track. Next thing that I would recommend is, uh, so Rosemary Kirstein wrote these books called, well, they're like the Steerswoman books. Yeah. And they are some of the best science fiction fantasy or like science fantasy or whatever you want to call it that I've ever read. Like, astounding the first two are called the steerswoman and the outskirter secret but you can get them in one volume called the steerswoman's road and the basic premise is it's a world that seems like kind of like a modern-ish fantasy world uh and there are these people called the steerswoman or the steersmen and they go around like collecting history and communicating history to people and the main character this steerswoman stumbles across a booby-trapped treasure chest on a ship that is taking her across the ocean and everyone who has touched this chest or tried to rob it has died magically. And through a series of weird circumstances, she tries to open the treasure chest and is totally fine. She feels like a tingle and nothing else. She's like, well, that was weird. And in like, anyways, it's a book where for the first two and a half books, I thought it was fantasy. And then I was like, holy shit, it's sci-fi. This is the same earth that I live on right now. <laughs> like the way that like you'll pick up on things, you're like, holy crap. Like it's so well done and there are still things that I don't understand four books in but it's just like really strong female characters on a journey kicking ass and you can't tell what's science and what is fantasy yes yeah. nice. alright Prue oh was that it yeah okay you I've got like tons so I apologize in advance because I apparently have a lot of really strong feelings about this <laughs> so the first one I'm going to recommend is another from the Redwall series that I've recommended before because I feel like Redwall sort of falls within the fantasy category. Um, and it's also a, a ton of my recs are YA fantasy, by the way. Uh, Mossflower, which is sort of the prequel to the Redwall, which is like the very first book in that series. And it's all about how Redwall Abbey was founded. And it's 
one of those like really wonderful epic stories where the underdog wins and people join together to like solve a problem and they fight like an evil creature and it's all great and they're all little forest creatures and it's fantastic. If you read Watership Down and were super traumatized, the <laughs> the Redwall series is going to be your antidote because all the mice and voles are awesome and no one kills each other in like gruesome ways unless they're doing it for great justice. So Brian Jock, Mossfire, definitely read it. Um, my next couple of recs are all by Bruce Koval, who was one of the most influential writers of my life. And if you've never read one of his books, you need to pick them up because they're amazing. I've actually met him. He's really great. Is he? Oh my God. Have you like touched his hand? I don't remember. I, um, I probably shook his hand at some point, but yeah. I actually visited his apartment in New York with some friends one time, briefly. Did you steal some of his stuff? I I didn't steal his stuff. I just love him. I love him so much. Oh, this is like how I once met uh, <laughs> I once met Gordon Corman and almost cried. So like Bruce Koval is definitely also in the same category. Um, but the first of the Koval books that I'm going to recommend is the My Teacher is an Alien series, which is an amazing series, both because it totally examines the terrible early and mid-puberty ennui you get attacked by once you hit middle school, and it puts it in the context of aliens. So essentially, it's basically all of these kids at this middle school who have various things going on in their lives, right, that you will instantly be able to sympathize with because you had that exact same fucking problem when you were 13. And all of them realizing that their teacher is an alien, like face peeling off, like green underneath alien. And it's a series of books that goes through My Teacher's an Alien, My Teacher Fried My Brains, My Teacher Glows in the Dark, and um, the last one is My Teacher Flunked the Planet. But basically, like, after they figure out this guy's an alien, you realize that there's, like, a larger arc to the story where he's basically on Earth to try and decide whether or not Earth deserves to continue to exist, given the trajectory that Earth is on. It's incredibly accessible really fun to read and even though the new covers for the books suck the stories remain just as awesome as they ever have been i'm sorry wait, and um, wait he's gonna decide whether or not to kill us all and they put him in a middle school aka like the worst examples of humanity ever yeah yeah i mean the, i guess the point is that like if you know if the terribleness of middle schoolers can still be saved then the earth as a whole, deserves to be saved. But the, but the really interesting part is that Koval is amazing at sketching out teenagers who are really, really flawed, but completely sympathetic. So you have, you have like, the nerd, and then you have, like, the weird girl who no one pays attention to, and then you have a book from the point of view of the actual bully who makes their life terrible. Wow. And all of this, like, knits into a really fantastic, interesting um, story about aliens and sort of, like, a larger tale about the Earth and its balance and stuff like that. Highly recommended. They're really quick reads as well um so you know pick it up you'll blow through all four of them very quickly the other one that i recommend this one i find like very few people have read but i don't know why because it has one of the most memorable elements of it of all time it's called space station ice three also by bruce Koval. this is straight up science fiction far future where people um our main character is a boy who lives on a giant space station out in the middle of well space obviously but i mean this book is, like, amazing to me on so many levels, right? This is... So, he lives on a space station, and the primary source of protein on the space station is rabbits, because they don't take up any space, and they reproduce, like, crazy. So, like, everything is, like, bunny burgers and stuff like that. And the more you think about it, and you're like, that makes a lot of sense. We should probably eat more rabbit, which is a weird thought to be having when you're 12 and really like bunnies. You know what? They're delicious, and they make great pets. Exactly. So, it, once you stop loving them, you can make food out of them. But the point is that it's, um, this is a murder mystery set on a space station. So it's a science fiction murder mystery. And it is super, super, super cool. They basically <laughs> find this be like, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. They basically find this body dumped into like a waste tank on the space station. Our main character, whose name is Rusty, has to try and help like this crazy scientist that he works with um, figure out who actually killed the guy on the space station. So it's like a very traditional like murder mystery, but in the context of a space station where they eat rabbits. It's lots yeah. of fun. My final Koval recommendation, and this one goes out to all the girls and everyone who has ever felt ugly. 
one of the books that got me through my terrible, terrible puberty years, right, is a book called Jennifer Murdley's Toad, and it is part of Bruce Coville's Magic Shop series. And it's about this girl who basically gets walks into a magic shop, and the only thing that she wants in her life is to be beautiful because she's chubby and she's pretty unattractive. And it's this crazy fantasy story that sort of like weaves in fairy tale elements and all about her having to make a decision and having to realize that how she looks really doesn't matter in the context of who she is. It's a beautiful story. I think everyone should read it. Like, I have a totally destroyed copy that is at my parents' house because I read it so many times when I was 12. And my last recommendation, not from Bruce Coville this time, is I think like the quintessential science fiction that should get everyone into science fiction. And you always forget that it's technically science fiction. Uh, and I have a copy of the one, two, three, four, five books that I stole from my 11th grade teacher who actually got me into the genre. And it's the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. Yeah. In case you have somehow gone through your entire life without reading this, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is one of those fundamental reading experiences that absolutely everyone needs because it is so amazingly funny. It is incredibly funny. It's so it, if you've lived in England, it's so British. It's like the most British humor I've ever read, but it's like the most British humor I've ever read in space. And it starts off with Arthur Dent, our main character, waking up and finding out that they're going to knock down his house to build, like, a, a highway, basically. And then Earth gets blown up because they're going to build an interstellar highway, which makes him homeless and then planetless, and he ends up having to travel all across the universe with his crazy friend, Ford Prefect, who's named himself that because when he came to Earth, he did a survey of the population and thought that cars with the dominant like the dominant population right and it's 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 so clever and it's so funny and if you haven't read this already like why the fuck haven't you read this already stop listening to the podcast and go read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy but uh yeah that's my final rec and I think that I think that does it for us this week guys do we have any closing thoughts words of wisdom give us your last very crappy elevator pitch on your books Martha oh gosh no pressure don't suck (laughs) <laughs> well, their main species is basically about um, flying, flying lizard, you know, sort of, sort of dragonish people that are bisexual and have a matriarchy. How about this? What is the what is the primary conflict in your latest series starring these flying lizard bisexual people in a matriarchy? With the main character, it's like has he been alone too long to be able to fit in? Uh, so we've got the cloud roads out, the serpent sea is out, and when can, and what was the third book and when is it due again? The Siren Depths, and it's coming out. It should be January or February, and they're available in trade paperback, uh, various different kinds of kinds of eBooks and uh, audiobook. Oh, are you reading that or someone else? No, somebody else reads it. Somebody, somebody that can pronounce words reads it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Highly overrated skill for a fiction author. It's Christopher Kapitniak. Lots of C's and K's in that. Yeah, he reads it and uh, does a really excellent job. All right, that sounds fantastic. We are going to have to look forward to that. And Martha, thank you so much for coming on with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. We had a good time with you too. Alrighty, guys, that does it for us this week. Happy Sunday, and see you guys on the flip side. Bye. 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 If you're getting suicide ghost romance again, Emily, I swear to God, I'm going to nail you a punch in the face. I'm back. I heard you say that you were going to punch me in the face if I wrecked my favorite ghost time travel amnesia historical romance. If we made a drinking game based off of like, every one of our listeners would be dead.